Russian missiles hit key Ukrainian cities this morning, including the capital, Kyiv, in one of the biggest strikes in weeks. It's Thursday, December 29th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, more flight cancellations today for Southwest Airlines. The holiday meltdown was a surprise for some industry analysts. They've got the best reputation for customer service and management agility. You know, they're usually pretty good at responding to crises. Also this hour, local officials in New York begin investigating Congressman-elect George Santos, the Republican who's admitted to lying about much of his past. And more New Englanders are turning to wood to heat their homes. And that's good news for the region's chimney sweeps. Right now, I'm, I think I'm fully booked until the middle of February which is pretty far out for this time of year. In sports, the Bruins win, mostly sunny in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Southwest Airlines is still operating only about a third of its daily scheduled flights. While many stranded passengers have found other travel arrangements, much of their baggage has not. Catherine Monahan of member station KQED spoke with travelers at the Oakland International Airport yesterday. About 50 people are waiting at the Southwest baggage counter. Hundreds of stranded suitcases are stacked behind them. Angela Shackelforn and Derek Maynard have just been told their bags got sent to Atlanta. They tried to fly there on Saturday. But now our luggage is taking a vacation without us. Christmas gifts and all. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I had a Christmas gifts for my father in there and uh, for the family from them to see and hopefully get it on the 24th, the day before Christmas. But now it's, yeah. Southwest says it is finalizing a resource to assist customers with lost baggage and hopes to be back to normal by next week. For NPR News, I'm Catherine Monahan. The severe winter weather last week put a lot of stress on the nation's electrical grid, with some regions reporting rolling blackouts. But as NPR's Camila Dominowski reports, there was no repeat of the kind of catastrophe that gripped Texas in 2021. The problem isn't just that storms can bring down power lines. Bad weather can make it harder to make electricity, exactly when folks need more of it. Picture a power plant freezing over while you turn on a space heater. But overall, the grid did pretty well last week, partly because of the nature of the storm. Bernadette Johnson manages power and renewables at Inveris. It was dry, it was sunny, and it was windy. Those three things made this storm much easier to handle. Not a ton of ice or snow in most places, and lots of solar and wind power to help keep the lights on. The grid might not get so lucky during big storms in the future. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. Israel is swearing in a new government today, cementing Benjamin Netanyahu's comeback as premier. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports it's expected to be the most right-wing government in the country's history. We're going to be seeing this government try to concentrate power with the governing majority. We're going to see more dominance of ultra-Orthodox Jewish leadership as well. So we're going to see plans, their plans are to give more public funding to religious schools that don't teach kids math and subjects that are supposed to prepare you for a modern economy. NPR's Daniel Estrin. The Vatican says the health of former Pope Benedict is rapidly declining. Pope Francis on Wednesday announced that the 95-year-old was very ill and had asked the public for prayers. This is NPR News. 
South Sudan is deploying more than 700 troops to the Democratic Republic of the Congo to help the government contain the more than 100 insurgent groups fighting government forces. Ishma Fandikwa reports East African community members, including Kenya and Uganda, are pledging to contribute to a regional force. The deployment follows an uptick in armed violence, including attacks on civilians by militants. A resurgence of fighting between the Congolese army and the Mass 23 or M23 rebels has seen hundreds killed and hundreds of thousands displaced. The M23 formed in 2012 to defend Congolese Tutsis against Hutu armed groups accuses the government of reneging on a demobilization agreement. The DRC, the UN, the US and some European countries have openly accused neighboring Rwanda of supporting the rebels. Rwanda denies the charge. For NPR News, I am Ishma Fundikwa in Harare. At least 10 people are dead after a fire broke out Wednesday night at a hotel casino in northern Cambodia. Officials say the massive size of the blaze inside of the hotel complex made it difficult for crews to extinguish the fire. Authorities say they expect the death toll to grow as search and rescue operations continue for people who may be trapped. The cause of the fire is under investigation. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The city of Boston will continue its push to require more affordable housing from developers in the new year. Officials want to expand programs that raise money for housing from both commercial and residential developments. WBOR's Simone Rios reports. The city wants to require large developers to dedicate 20% of new building to affordable housing, up from the current 13%. Developers say this could discourage building. But Boston Housing Chief Sheila Dillon says the proposal was designed to keep projects feasible. So we have no interest in slowing down development, in stopping development, in you know reducing market rate development. But we also know that market rate development is not serving all of our residents, and we need housing for a variety of incomes. The policy changes will face public hearings in the coming months before being finalized and sent to city bodies for approval. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Medical experts say there's a new variant of the coronavirus that's become the dominant strain in the Northeast. It's called XBB. It's a form of the Omicron variant. The CDC says it's behind one in three COVID infections right now. Experts tell the Boston Globe that it is more transmissible than other versions. But XBB is not any more severe or harmful than other variants. They recommend people protect themselves by staying up to date on their COVID boosters. The number of food deliveries in Massachusetts ordered via apps like DoorDash and Uber Eats doubled during the pandemic. That's according to a report by the Metropolitan Area Planning Council. It finds that despite the growth, gig workers are often paid less than salaried workers in similar roles. Travis Pollack is one of the council's lead researchers. According to surveys, we could find rapid food delivery workers are more likely to be non-white, younger, immigrant, and low-income. He says many earn less than $16 per hour after expenses. They report poor overall physical and mental health as compared to salaried workers. It's 7.08.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at MathWorks.com careers. The Bruins beat the Devils 3-1 to last night in New Jersey. The Bees will return home Saturday to take on the Buffalo Sabres. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics play the Los Angeles Clippers. Mostly sunny today with a high in the mid to upper 40s. Clear overnight. Temperatures will be in the 30s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the 50s. Cloudy with a chance of rain on New Year's Eve. It'll be in the 50s. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 708. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. If a politician lies, does it amount to a crime? George Santos, a newly elected lawmaker from Long Island, faces that question. He admits he did not work where he claimed or study where he claimed or have the faith that he claimed. He initially denied a New York Times report about all this, but now says he exaggerated a bit. He spoke with Fox News. I'm not a fraud. I'm not a fake. I, I, I didn't materialize from thin air. I made some mistakes. A Republican prosecutor in New York has now opened a probe of Santos's deceptions. NPR's Brian Mann is following the story and joins us now. Brian, what were some of the uh, exaggerations? Well, it's a long and kind of baffling list of deceptions, Steve. He claimed he graduated from Baruch College, now admits that's not true. Claimed he worked for major Wall Street banks, also not true. He claimed four of his employees died in the Pulse nightclub shooting in Miami, not true. Claimed to own valuable real estate, that's not true. And a big one, he claimed his family escaped the Holocaust, that's not true. And he claimed to be a proud Jewish American, but now acknowledges being Catholic, though he still says he has some Jewish ancestors. That, again, is a claim uh, a group called the Republican Jewish Coalition calls deceptive. What does the prosecutor say about this? Well, the office of Nassau County District Attorney Ann Donnelly, this is a Republican, she released a statement describing Santos's lies as nothing short of stunning. Donnelly has promised to investigate and says, uh, and I'm quoting here, if a crime was committed in this county, we will prosecute it. However, if lying by itself was a crime, an awful lot more people would be in jail, including maybe some members of Congress. What would the crime be here? Yeah, well, as you point out, the Constitution does have rules about who can be sworn in, Steve. As a member of Congress, dishonesty alone is not a deal breaker. But there are campaign laws, and the question now is whether Santos did anything criminal. A lot of attention focused $700,000 loan that Santos gave to his own campaign. He now admits living in poverty much of his life and being unable to pay his bills. So the question is, where did all that money come from? I spoke about this with Richard Brefault, an expert on campaign law at Columbia University. So it would be serious if uh, instead of if, if this was not truly a loan, but this was somehow um, disguised campaign contributions from other people, uh, that's a crime to knowingly and willfully misreport the sources of your funds as well as to lie to the federal government. Now, Santos has said in interviews that uh, he broke no laws. He says this was his own money he loaned to his campaign, but his financial history now faces close scrutiny and Democrats are calling on the Federal Election Commission to also investigate. So lying about the money would be the crime, but there are other lies to get our brains around here, Brian, one of which he says is not a lie. He says, well, he just didn't speak all that clearly about his religion. Yeah, this piece is sparking a lot of outrage. The Republican Jewish Coalition now says Santos 
directly misled them about his heritage. They say Santos is no longer welcome at any of their functions. Some Republican leaders are acknowledging this is pretty explosive. The head of the Nassau County Republican Committee, a guy named Joseph Cairo Jr., released a statement saying, and I'm quoting here, Steve, the damage that Santos's lies have caused to many people, especially those who've been impacted by the Holocaust, are profound. In interviews, Santos now says he always described himself as Jewish. That's his phrase, sort of, I guess, a claim to be sort of Jewish. Uh, but that explanation is not going over well. What are other Republican-ish leaders saying about this scandal? Well, they're mostly silent at this point. Some have called for investigation by the House Ethics Committee, but none are saying that Santos shouldn't be sworn in. Uh, Santos' win on Long Island, remember, helped Republicans capture a narrow majority in the House, and Congressman Kevin McCarthy had praised Santos's victory, but now he's mostly gone silent. It's worth noting here that Santos promised to back McCarthy for House Speaker. McCarthy's still scrambling to round up enough GOP support to win that post. So despite this controversy, Santos could wind up being a really key vote next week, helping decide the House leadership. He could be a decisive vote. Brian, thanks. Thank you. And here's Brian Mann. People around Buffalo, New York, say they've made it through the blizzard of recent days by relying on each other. They have even relied on each other's body heat. Annabelle Padilla has two roommates and a cat. Things in our house, oils, our soap, everything was frozen. Most of our water was frozen. You know, nothing was working. So we all had to sleep in one bed, every single blanket in the house, trying to keep the cat warm, ourselves warm. Padilla found a Facebook group called Blizzard in Buffalo and asked for help. And in the matter of almost five minutes, I had almost five, ten people commenting on it, trying to get us out of our house and... Fortunately, this woman named Jennifer connected me with another woman named Meg that was um, our neighbor down the street, and she had an open apartment, and she let us go in and take refuge in her house. Padilla's mom is Bridget Thornton. We're all in a pretty miserable situation, but we're in it together. And so, you know, rather than making it worse by turning on each other, we, you know, we make it better by helping each other. Thornton says she and her neighbors have all been pitching in. There's just a lot of people out with shovels helping just random people get their cars unstuck, shovel their driveways, and then, you know, you, you move on to the next one. Cassidy Lechner is with the mutual aid group known as the Buffalo Snow Brigade. You know, we'll ask the, the folks who are requesting, what do you need? Do you need salting? Do you need de-icing? Do you need your walkway, your porch, your driveway? All right, now Buffalo has lifted its ban on driving, but Lechner says the Buffalo Mutual Aid Network still needs donations to help people trapped inside. So we can go and get groceries for people and bring them to their house because a lot of people haven't been able to go out and get groceries. And the shoveling continues. The winter storm last week brought record cold temperatures to much of the United States. A brutal blast of life-threatening cold from the Canadian border to the Gulf Coast. Look at this Arctic surge moving. 43 degrees to 10 degrees within just 10 minutes. Even Atlanta feels like minus 5 degrees. And that meant record pressure on the electric grid as heaters across the country kicked in to help keep people warm. 
But despite some strain on the grid, the nation's energy system did not collapse. NPR's Camila Damanaski joins us to discuss. So how big of a challenge was this for the electric grid? It was pretty significant. And to be clear, what we're talking about here isn't individual poles going down in a storm. That really is significant to the people in the neighborhood who are affected. But the risk with this kind of situation is actually about supplying an entire region, huge parts of the country, just based on how much demand there is at one time. It got really really cold in this storm. And the area that was affected was huge. There were records set for electricity demand in the Southwest, in Texas, in Tennessee. In Texas, they underestimated how much power there would be, which is a really dangerous situation for a grid. And cold weather also affects power production. So this was a real test. All right. So a lot of strain. How'd the grid do? Well, it didn't give out. Uh, you have to remember there are a bunch of different grids in what we call our grid. Some of them struggled and some of them did better than others. I spoke with Morris Greenberg. He's an analyst with S&P 500 who's been tracking the power sector for more than 25 years. I asked him what grade he would give utilities overall. Given how broad or large the system was and how low the temperatures got, I would think, you know, a B would be a reasonable grade for this. There were some outages, some rolling blackouts from systems that couldn't supply enough power. So not A plus work, but certainly, you know, he says it could be a lot worse. And we all remember what happened in Texas in 2021. That's what a lot worse can look like. Yes, we do remember that. So, OK, then why weren't things worse? I mean, was it luck or just preparation? A little bit of both. On the preparation side, there has been winterization, making sure that power plants can keep running when it gets really cold. Things like that happened particularly in Texas. On the luck side, there were a lot of things. This happened right before a holiday weekend. That means demand is on the lower side anyway. It happened early in the winter. That terrible storm in Texas that the grid nearly collapsed, that was in February. Right now, there's still a lot of natural gas in storage because it's early in the season. It's also important that the super cold temperatures sort of moved across the country. So early on, extra power from out east could be sent west. Later on, extra power from the west could be sent east to manage the really intense moments. And there was one more bit of luck that came from the storm itself. The system was accompanied by pretty strong winds, which meant that wind chill temperatures were lower, but it also meant that in general, wind generation was, was higher so more wind power. That wind might not have felt lucky if you were standing in it, but it did help keep the lights on. Yeah, I guess uh, we can't count on that with every cold snap, though. Um, what do you think, though, this uh, means uh, for the crystal ball for the electric grid? I mean, it means that conversations about grid reliability are not going away, especially because, you know, I mentioned all these areas that set new records for demand in the winter. Well, demand is just going to keep going up, especially as the fight against climate change kicks in. People are going to switch to electric vehicles, electric stoves, electric home heating systems. That means less carbon dioxide, but it also means more pressure on the electric grid, including in storms like this, demand switching from natural gas and oil to electricity to run a lot of heat pumps in the winter. So as areas look at future demand going up and up, you know, utilities need to plan ahead and be prepared for extra demand coming in the seasons to come.
And what about the rest of the energy system? Yeah, we're talking a lot about electricity here, but this storm put pressure on other systems too. I mentioned there are uh, decent supplies of natural gas right now, at least in the parts of the country that were the coldest in this storm. There's plenty of propane too. Some refineries on the coast, uh, on the Gulf Coast, did have to shut down, which has put pressure on supplies of crude oil and gasoline. That's nudging gasoline prices up, but they have been dropping for weeks, so drivers aren't currently feeling too much of a pinch there either. That's NPR's Camila Domenoski. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new initiative pairs Massachusetts businesses with students for an extended education in science and technology. And the high price of energy has many New Englanders using wood to heat their homes this winter, leading to more business for chimney sweeps. It's 720. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by professional pastry arts at BU's programs in food and wine, teaching the classic and advanced techniques behind making the perfect flaky, buttery treats. Study with world-class bakers and learn what it takes to launch a food-related career in just 14 weeks. More at bu.edu slash foodandwine slash pastry. From Robert Bork's consumer harm to Lena Khan's democratic harm, what ideas drive the government's approach to antitrust regulation? Forty years ago, we chose the wrong path, in my view. Following the misguided philosophy of people like Robert Bork and pull back on enforcing laws to promote competition. Our special series, More Than Money, continues on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly clear skies today with a high near 50. Right now, it's 35 degrees in Boston at 722. Support for NPR comes from this station and from ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. And from the estate of Joan B. Croc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is NPR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts is expanding its early college program with $5 million in new funding. The money will be used to offer two additional years of free post-secondary coursework and job training for students in the fields of science and technology. WBUR's Carrie Young reports. The state's existing early college program allows students to simultaneously earn a high school diploma and accrue college credit during all four years of high school. Massachusetts Education Secretary Jim Pizer says the initiative will create new six-year STEM tech career academies 
which will be hosted by five community colleges across the state and serve more than a dozen high schools in underserved areas. They're building off of existing pathways and sort of taking it to the next level. The initiative involves more than a dozen businesses in the science and technology fields that have agreed to provide paid work opportunities throughout the program. Ed Lambert, the executive director of the Massachusetts Business Alliance for Education, says many of his members are hungry to grow this pipeline, since jobs in STEM fields are growing at more than twice the rate of other industries. We also want to make sure that the talent that we see in these industries is diverse. And that means particularly in urban school settings where there's a particular lack of access to these kinds of programs, it's all the more important. According to state employment data, men outnumber women in the STEM field three to one, and only 27 percent of workers in these industries identify as non-white. The first cohort of students is expected to enroll in the fall of 2024. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. As energy prices skyrocket this winter, many people are firing up their wood stoves to keep warm. And that means more business for chimney sweeps. Mara Hoplamazian reports from New Hampshire. Sarah Wilson keeps track of her heating costs on colorful paper. She's got records going back to 2017. And the price of her last oil delivery was the highest it's ever been. The jump is tremendous in the price. And, you know, we can do it. But... If we can heat our home without having to pay $6.99 a gallon for oil, I'd rather just see if we could do it. That's why the Wilsons are heating a little differently this winter. And the wood stove they normally use as just a fun comfort has been burning around the clock. We've got a barn full of wood, um, and then I stay up late, so I'm the one that feeds it late into the night to get it on into the morning to keep it going. A lot of Granite Staters are facing high heating costs this winter. To cope, some are turning to wood. The price of wood is also expensive right now, but it can be a relatively cheaper option, especially for those who have logs stockpiled. For the Wilsons, that means using a cord they bought a couple summers ago and an old maple tree they had to cut down in the backyard. The barn was, I didn't know where I was going to put all the wood, and I thought this is going to last us like five, six years, and we've gone through about a third of it already this winter. The Wilsons had used the wood stove occasionally for six years, but in that time, they'd never gotten it cleaned. I read that note, I was like, so it could be a doozy. We may find all sorts of things. That's Christopher Britt. He's a chimney sweep, and he kind of leans into the bit. Shaking of a sweep's hand is, a dirty sweep's hand is apparently really good luck. Which is funny, because not a lot of people want to shake my hand when it's dirty. Britt has been out and about a lot more these days. With the cost of gas and oil, he says more people have wanted to burn wood and make sure their stove is in working condition. We have a lot of new customers trying to get their wood stoves and everything checked out, so there's been a lot more estimates and having to write out quotes for people. Like, right now, I'm, I think I'm fully booked until the middle of February, which is pretty far out for this time of year. He'll be at the Wilsons for about two hours. Maybe you're picturing old-school sweep stuff, a top hat and an oversized pipe cleaner, but modern sweeps like Brit have a new set of tools that allow them to check out a chimney more efficiently. With the, uh, the tools that we have, like the rotary system, is a lot more effective and safer than having to climb on the roof with a bunch of equipment and just, you know, chim-chim-chimney. The first thing Britt does at the Wilsons is set up a big drop cloth and a double-filtered vacuum in the living room next to the stove. That will keep things clean, relatively. You might get a little dusty and it's going to be a little loud. 
There's three parts to what Britt will do today. A cleaning, an inspection with a camera, and then he goes up to the roof. For the cleaning, he breaks out the rotary system. It kind of looks like a weed whacker. He uses it to knock down the gunk that's built up over the years. That gunk is called creosote, and it's the reason you need a chimney sweep. In the Wilson's chimney, it's there, but mostly harmless. Fine, powdery, and a little bit of hard, flaky stuff. But if you're burning wood with more moisture in it, not burning hot enough, or not getting your chimney cleaned, creosote can build up and get sticky. And that's the stuff that you really want to be worried of because it can ignite, combust, cause a chimney fire. Heating is one of the leading causes of fires in New Hampshire. And December, January, and February are peak times for heating-related fires, according to the state's fire marshal. Chimney fires are one of the biggest threats. That's why, after he cleans out the gunk, Britt does a few more inspections to make sure everything about the chimney is safe. He takes out a small screen and a cylindrical device. So this is a chimney. It kind of looks like a jellyfish. It's basically just a rotating camera he puts in the chimney to make sure nothing is broken or damaged. Once the Wilsons pass the camera test, it's time for the roof. Britt leans a ladder against the house and climbs up. Do you get scared coming up on roofs? Depends on the roof. Um, I'm not scared of heights. Uh, I respect them. That's the way that I put that. (laughs) He checks the masonry, looking for cracks or damage in the mortar or the brick. He also checks the inner liner, which holds all the soot and creosote. So we verified that it was clean from the bottom. I just verified it is, in fact, clean from the top. Uh, So it's got a good bill of health. Once he's off the roof, Britt collects his tools, packs up the van, and gets ready to head to his next chimney. He's got four more jobs scheduled for the day. He's still relatively clean, just some smudging on his hands. But he says, as a sweep, you have to be okay with going home dirty every day. Sometimes I am completely covered in soot from head to toe. Now that her chimney is clean and safe, Sarah Wilson plans to load up the wood stove. I do not see an issue with you burning that at all. That's great. Well, it's very comforting to know. Yeah, it is perfectly set up. She agrees to get her chimney a regular checkup. And before Britt leaves, she makes sure to shake his hand. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, what's next for Southwest Airlines after its holiday meltdown triggered a public relations disaster? It's 7.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Russia continues its massive bombardment in Ukraine. It fired more missiles early today, targeting the capital, Kyiv, and the northeastern city of Kharkiv. NPR's Tim Mack has more. Yesterday here in Kharkiv, two strikes hit the city's energy infrastructure. The temperature has been hovering around freezing over the last week, and this bitter wind makes life here just that much harder. The Ukrainians pushed the Russian military out of this region, the region of Kharkiv, in September in this flash counteroffensive. But there is still concern here that the Russians could be back soon. In recent months, Russia has carried out numerous airstrikes on central infrastructure in Ukraine. Crews in Buffalo, New York, are making progress in trying to clear mounds of snow after last week's blizzard. The ban on driving in the city has been lifted. The storm system affected much of the country. In Jackson, Mississippi, it may have disrupted the water supply. The city system failed to produce adequate pressure because of broken and leaking pipes. Some residents have had no water in days. The city sent up distribution centers for bottled water. Marquita Moore sounded frustrated as she waited in line. I just had surgery and I had to take my medication 
and it's on my right foot. I got to get out to try to drive to get water. I am so upset with Jackson. Water system had partially collapsed in August. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Some Boston researchers say it's time to require that healthcare organizations nationwide keep track of their greenhouse gas emissions. WBUR's Martha Biebinger explains why. The argument outlined in a New England Journal of Medicine commentary is that hospitals, clinics, rehab centers, and labs have a duty to reduce the harmful effects of pollution and climate change. Northeastern professor Matt Eckelman says reporting admissions would be the first step towards a larger goal, which is... How to carry out decarbonization in the healthcare sector most effectively, most quickly, in the best way for patients and clinicians and staff. Many Massachusetts hospitals have agreed to voluntary admissions reporting requirements, but few other healthcare settings here have signed on. Healthcare reporting nationwide is even more limited. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. State cannabis regulators are keeping rules in place established during the pandemic a little bit longer. That'll allow medical marijuana patients to continue meeting with their providers using telehealth care. They can then pick up their prescriptions curbside. The state will also continue allowing prospective dispensary owners to attend required meetings virtually. The Cannabis Control Commission voted to keep the orders in place until February while it does more research into their impact. Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito plans to work with her family's real estate development firm when she leaves office next week. Polito tells the Boston Globe she also hopes to work as a mentor for people entering politics or government work. She surprised political insiders earlier this year when she decided not to run for higher office. But Polito says she and Governor Baker decided when they entered office in 2014 that they would also leave office together. The man known as the Poet Laureate of the Boston Red Sox has died. Dick Flavin grew up in Quincy. He worked in politics and as a journalist. Then in 2013, he began a five-year stint as the public address announcer at Fenway Park. He also wrote poems about the team and baseball. Dick Flavin died yesterday. He was 86 years old. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. You can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. Three different Bruins scored in last night's 3-1 to win over the Devils in New Jersey. The Bees are now off until Saturday. That's when they'll return home to face the Buffalo Sabres. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics take on the Los Angeles Clippers. In your forecast, mostly sunny skies today with just a few clouds and temperatures in the upper 40s. Low 30s tonight. Then we end the week tomorrow with another mostly sunny day in the low 50s. Our New Year's Eve this year will be mostly cloudy and in the mid-50s with a good chance of rain beginning in the late afternoon. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Life is so busy during the holiday season that it can be tough to keep up on the news. But people who have tickets to fly on Southwest may have time to hear this next story while they wait for the airline to work out cancellations and delays. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith asked how a winter storm hit this airline more than others. Hillary Chang has been a Southwest Airlines devotee for years. Chang is 29, and she and her boyfriend travel a lot. I am like a very loyal Southwest customer. I have a Southwest credit card. We actually only fly Southwest. Chang and her boyfriend were booked on a Southwest flight on Christmas Day from Baltimore to L.A. with a connection in Houston. They arrived in Houston hours late, only to learn their flight to L.A. had been canceled. They were told to get their bags and try to rebook. We hurried a baggage claim, and it's just bags everywhere. Probably over a 1,000. It's like if you had Legos from a bucket and you were to dump them on the ground, that's what it looked like. So I'm not going to lie. I was in tears, crying. (laughs) Southwest has canceled over 13,000 flights in the last few days. 10 times more than any other airline. Industry analyst Richard Abalafia says it's not surprising airlines struggled given the terrible storm as well as the staffing shortages they've been experiencing. But he says he never expected Southwest to emerge as the cancellation king. They've got the best reputation for customer service and management agility. They're usually pretty good at responding to crises. So what went wrong? The problem seems to be twofold. First, Abulafia says most airlines are on a so-called hub and spoke system. They pool resources in certain cities and route most of their flights through there. It is less efficient day to day, but it can make it easier to pivot when things go wrong. Southwest uses a so-called point-to-point system, which is leaner and more efficient, but also means resources are more scattered. Their route system rendered it uniquely vulnerable to a storm-precipitated meltdown. So did outdated technology. That is what the president of the Southwest Flight Attendance Union, Lynn Montgomery, told NPR. The way that they have to notify their flight crews is a manual process. You actually have to talk to a crew scheduler. Longtime Southwest loyalist Hillary Chang says that systems meltdown was on full display at the Houston airport on Christmas. There were hundreds of people standing in line. It wrapped all the way around the building. You have like crying children and moms that are breastfeeding. And there there are people who are elderly, like really bundled up because Houston just happened to be freezing on Christmas. Chang and her boyfriend quickly realized they would have to fend for themselves. They rented a car and drove the 21 hours back to Los Angeles. Chang doesn't expect to get her suitcase back ever which is really upsetting. Chang's boyfriend just proposed and the ring is on her finger, but the ring box was in her suitcase and she was hoping to save it as a keepsake. Chang says all of this has really shaken her years-long loyalty to Southwest. I'm open to dating a new airline. Social media is full of former Southwest loyalists saying they are done with the carrier. Meanwhile, Southwest CEO released a statement saying they're working to understand what went so wrong and are, quote, apologizing daily to staff and customers. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. President Biden made a lot of foreign policy moves during his first year in office, and of them, the most prominent was the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. During Biden's second year, very different events dominated the news, and administration officials insist that hard first year set the stage for the second. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken spent a lot of time this year with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. In fact, I'm going to ask you if there are apartments available at NATO headquarters because we're here so much that uh, we probably need one. The war in Ukraine has given NATO a new sense of purpose after a chaotic end to its mission in Afghanistan last year. Secretary of State Blinken puts it this way. If we were still in Afghanistan, it would have, I think, made much more complicated the support that we've been able to give and that others have been able to give Ukraine to resist and push back against the Russian aggression. Russia's war in Ukraine also gave the Biden administration a chance to show the world they are a competent team, says Aaron David Miller of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. In a way, Putin offered Joe Biden a moment of real competence, credibility, and even greatness in American foreign policy. After all, Russia and Ukraine was probably the most consequential event in Europe since the end of the Second World War. Miller says that the Ukrainian president's dramatic visit to Washington was designed to keep Congress and U.S. allies on board with the U.S. approach, that is, to help Ukraine degrade Russia's military without getting into a direct conflict with Moscow. It's not perfect, but it was as high a mark, I think, as anybody could have expected. And in the wake of Afghanistan, I think it completely reversed the image that America would never lead again. Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute agrees, but she says the Biden administration is going to have to get Europe to start spending more in Ukraine. If that's not forthcoming, the Secretary of State ought to be preparing Americans for that, and he ought to be working to get Europeans to more equitably share the burden with the United States, especially in the reconstruction phase, and I don't see that work going on. Blinken talks a lot about working together with allies on challenges from Russia to China. We're in a fundamentally stronger position to address the issues that actually affect the lives of the American people when we do so alongside the many countries that share our fundamental interests and values. But when it comes to China, that may not be enough, according to a former assistant secretary of state for Asia, Susan Thornton, now at Yale Law School. It seems like most of the operation is aimed at sort of working with other countries against China rather than working with China. And I personally just think that we can't accomplish our goals in foreign policy if we're not working with China. She says the U.S. needs to work with China on the big global issues, nonproliferation, health and climate change. Blinken plans a trip there early next year, and Thornton says he has his work cut out. We would have to sort of start to build back some kind of constructive conversation after three years of a pandemic where basically had no contact and, you know, several years before that where the relationship was in free fall. Thornton says it doesn't help that this administration talks about a world divided into autocracies and democracies. Corey Shockey of AEI puts that in her debit column, too, as she reflects on Biden's foreign policy this year. Grandstanding on putting human rights at the center of U.S. foreign policy without follow through with Saudi Arabia or Egypt, and this pointless statement about support for women and girls in Afghanistan is heartbreaking in its emptiness. Blinken says a lot of countries are joining the U.S. in pressuring the Taliban to give women and girls access to education. So far, international condemnation hasn't had much of an impact on Afghanistan's rulers. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to Morning Edition from NPR News. 
I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, for the first time since Colorado legalized recreational pot sales, revenue is down. And in our next hour, a Republican strategist explains the GOP's opposition to lifting pandemic-era rules that led to the expulsion of thousands of asylum seekers. In your forecast, upper 40s today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight, low 30s. Then for your Friday, mostly sunny and low 50s. Saturday, a mostly cloudy New Year's Eve in the mid-50s with a good chance of rain in the evening. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. Now, in business news, there are 230 craft breweries in Massachusetts, and this year has been a challenging one for a majority of them. WBUR's Andrea Shea spoke with the head of the Massachusetts Brewers Guild. It wasn't really the boon year that we hoped that it would be post-pandemic. Katie Stinchin is the Guild's executive director. We did not see the return to on-premise consumption in our tap rooms the way that we had hoped. There isn't that big lunch crowd anymore because people aren't coming into the office five days a week. There isn't that big after-work crowd. Then there are the skyrocketing prices. Our brewers are seeing an increase in costs in goods from hops and malt and everything they need to, to run their business from 13 to 30 percent. Eight Massachusetts breweries closed this year, but 20 new ones are on tap in the coming months. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Colorado's cannabis industry had a hard year. Sales boomed during the pandemic to more than $2 billion statewide, but a post-pandemic decline has seen prices drop by more than 20%. Ben Marcus of Colorado Public Radio reports on how some growers are coping. Just off the freeway in North Denver, among shabby-looking warehouses, the slight smell of marijuana on the streets signals that this is the city's de facto marijuana farmland. It's freezing and dry outside, but inside one of these warehouses it feels tropical, warm and bright and humid, filled with tall green plants. This operation is owned by Matt Huron of Good Chemistry Nurseries. You're looking at my 401k right now. (laughs) It is not cheap to build one of these. But much to his chagrin, Huron is now competing with a bunch of new grows. It all started when the pandemic lockdowns led to a boom in demand. For the first time, legal cannabis sales hit $2 billion in Colorado in 2020. Investment rushed into every level of the industry, but especially grows. Everyone saw the lines around the corner Cannabis is pandemic proof, right? Well, you know, it takes, you know, it takes a good year and a half 
to build one of these things. But by the time they opened, vaccines had become widespread. Pot lost some of its appeal, as people weren't just sitting at home streaming Netflix anymore. Huron and the other Denver growers saw what was happening, and they pulled back production. But at the same time, counties all over Colorado had already approved new grows, like out in rural Crowley County, where Roy Elliott is a county commissioner. It's still a pretty sore subject in the county. Uh... Colorado lets governments ban marijuana businesses, and like most rural counties, Crowley initially didn't allow grow houses. Being mostly right-leaning county, a lot of people aren't uh, too fond of marijuana grows. But it's only got 6,000 residents, half of whom are inmates at the local private prison. In 2016, Crowley okayed pot farms. But nothing materialized until the pandemic. And almost overnight, it became the eighth largest producing county in Colorado. It hit that boom after, after COVID, and I think too many people got, got into it. Now, Elliot says some of those grows are closing permanently, and many are still sitting on a lot of marijuana that hasn't hit the market yet, which means the supply glut will last into 2023. Christopher Steffen is a real estate broker who specializes in cannabis. He says that's bad because consumer demand never bounced back. You know, Black Friday used to be a big day for us, and it hit with a thud. Marijuana tax collections have fallen by more than $90 million this year. It funds everything from school construction to addiction treatment. Stefan says during the pandemic, businesses were expanding rapidly, courted by big-money investors. Now they're unraveling. Uh, and now you're meeting with lawyers all day, and you're fighting your partners and your best friends. Back in Denver at Matt Huron's Grow Warehouse, he says marijuana has become like the hyper-competitive restaurant industry, where some will do well. And then there's a gazillion other guys that open up a restaurant and they're out of business in a year. And that's really what the cannabis industry is now. And just like a restaurant, Huron hopes to distinguish his good chemistry stores by focusing on quality, on proprietary marijuana he spent years cultivating, appealing to the discerning customer. For NPR News, I'm Ben Marcus in Denver. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Detroit is leading a national comeback in a style of roller skating where every move matches a Motown song. And in 30 minutes, coal power plants have long played a vital economic role in Navajo Nation communities. Now those communities are suffering as renewable energy becomes more popular. It's 7.50. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's independent journalism is essential to our democracy. Listener support is what keeps WBUR independent. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Clear skies in upper 40s today, low 30s tonight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and slightly warmer in the low 50s. Right now, it's 36 degrees in Boston. Coming next Wednesday to WBUR City Space, a conversation with journalist Andrew Callaghan. He'll be talking about his latest documentary called 
This place rules. It focuses on the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol by supporters of Donald Trump. In-person tickets are sold out, but you can join us virtually. Learn how by visiting WBUR.org slash events. It's 751. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. One of the last big album releases of 2022 came from the hip-hop singer and songwriter SZA. It's called S.O.S. and it shot straight to number one. This week we've been asking people about the lyrics that moved them this past year and the writer Kiana Fitzgerald found one on the SZA record. The lyric that stuck with me the most comes from Blind. Eating everything to get no fasting. I don't care how much you knew me in the past tense. I ain't no Julia Stiles, this ain't no last dance. Way past it. The lyric is, it's so embarrassing. All of the things I need living inside of me, I can't see it. It's so embarrassing. All of the things I need living inside of me, I can't see it. It's so embarrassing. The relatability of this lyric really struck a chord with me as well as many, many other listeners. And some of us are more readily vocal about why we relate to it and other people will never admit to it. It's SZA basically saying, you want to be with me to a potential partner or a former partner, but I need to figure this out for myself. I need to figure out how to love myself without all these obstacles in the way that you're tossing in my direction. I don't want righteousness, I hurt too much, I lost too much, I lost too much, I hit my clutch and room, third day pop out the tomb. You know, it's something that anybody can relate to, just feelings of inadequacy, feelings of jealousy or trust issues or anything that you might have with someone that you're willing to deal with romantically. You know, we've all, or many of us, I should say, have been through relationships, situationships, dysfunctional, functioning, whatever. And there's always some kind of tug and pull when it comes to love. So this is something that I feel many people can relate to and that's why it's uh, performing as well as it is. The song is by SZA, it's called Blind. Kiana Fitzgerald is a frequent contributor to NPR Music and the Pop Culture Happy Hour. Next, we have some music from Detroit, Motown. You know, the Supremes, the Temptations, Smokey Robinson, that sort of thing. It totally changed the landscape of American music and also changed roller skating. Detroit's black skaters were inspired by the hits coming from Motown Records, a tempo and rhythm that helped to create what is known as the Detroit style. NPR's Nina Rao reports. I'm standing right on the edge of the roller skating rink at Northland Roller Rink in Detroit, Michigan. It's skate jam night, and the theme is throwback. This means skate night with R&B, disco, and soul music playing for everyone to jam to. Detroit style is what you see. That's 61-year-old Angie McClendon. She's been skating since she was five, so she knows what makes the Detroit style unique. We just don't skate willy-lilly. It's certain things we do, uh, half turns, reverses. Like the hatch, where three skaters hold hands and turn their bodies right to left as they're moving. 
The Detroit style can also be done while the rest of the body is mostly still, with the help of toe stops, which are rubber balls on the bottom of the skates. This uniqueness can be traced back to the early days of Motown. Standing still allows you to put it on a stage. Tasha Klusman is the historian behind the National African American Roller Skating Archive. With Motown, they were learning to smile and how to carry an audience and how to present themselves. Roller skating was just another vehicle to do it. The origins of the Great Migration influenced this move. Klusman says many Black families left the South between 1910 to 1970 due to lynching and other crimes. In Detroit, companies like Ford provided a way for people to make money, buy houses, cars, and own businesses, like the Rollercade rink. And we are reporting live from Rollercade for the 67th anniversary skate party. Founders Johnny and Leroy folks migrated from Alabama to Detroit and fell in love with roller skating after several summer trips to Idlewild. Kyle Black is Johnny and Leroy's grandson. There was only one skating rink in the neighborhood, and um, they only allowed Black people one day out of the week, and they wanted to skate more frequently. Black says that motivated his grandparents to open a space for their children and community to roller skate in in 1955. Nearly 70 years later, the rink is still standing with a new location in downtown and increased popularity. During the pandemic, roller skating was one of the few outlets that people had that were safe which led to an immediate spike in skate sales and participation. In fact, skyrocketing roller skate sales led to a shortage of them worldwide in 2020 and 2021. Nolan Edwards, founder of the Detroit Skating Company and collective Motown Roller Club, says social media played a huge role in this major skating resurgence. During the COVID timeframe, one of our videos got about half a million views on it. That one that we put out, on TikTok and Instagram attained like a big majority of the following for us. Edwards says videos that will gain 50 to 60 likes every month increased to thousands on the company's TikTok during the pandemic. I don't think people realize how powerful TikTok is. It was thanks to the internet. People just fell in love with roller skating and it just absolutely blew up. Edwards started posting instructional skate videos on social media, which helped Motown Roller Club take off. And now it hosts weekly skate classes and sessions across Detroit, including Northland Roller Rink. 19-year-old Elijah Smith is skating across the rink for Skate Jam Night. He's recording some of the skaters on his phone to post on social media. What he loves most about roller skating is how he can add new things to the Detroit style. The same moves used 50 years ago are still being used today. So it's not a set thing that you have to do every time. So when you're coming out on the floor, it's just always something brand new every single time. Ensuring this tradition stays alive as a new generation takes over. For NPR News, I'm Nina Rao. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
A high near 48 today under mostly sunny skies, a low around 34 tonight, and the skies stay clear. Tomorrow, the last Friday of the year, mostly sunny and a high of 54. New Year's Eve will be cloudy with a high near 56. And if you're making plans, keep in mind there's a good chance of rain starting Saturday evening and continuing into New Year's Day. It's 35 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Thayer Academy, an independent co-ed day school since 1877, inspiring students in grades 5 through 12. Winter Open House, January 4th, Thayer.org. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Using cruise missiles and drones, Russia has launched what may be its largest attack yet on Ukraine's energy infrastructure in cities including Kyiv. It's Thursday, December 29th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new government made up of far-right nationalists and led by Benjamin Netanyahu is sworn into office in Israel today. Also this hour, the transition away from coal has left some Navajo Nation communities that housed power plants struggling. They were extremely important because they helped create the Navajo middle class to a great extent. And diminishing press freedom in India. There are many journalists in India who are being arrested, silenced. They can't tell their stories. We are in a very, very grim place where press freedom is concerned. Plus the GOP strategy on Title 42, an order used to expel thousands of asylum seekers. In sports, the Bruins win, mostly sunny in the 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The city of Buffalo is starting to recover after a severe winter storm devastated the region, leaving dozens of people dead. Emergency crews have been working to clear roadways and dig out vehicles that were buried in massive snowdrifts. The city has also announced that it's lifting a travel ban that's been in place since the weekend. During a press conference, Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown thanked first responders for their tireless efforts during the storm. If not for the heroic actions of police and fire and plow drivers and state police uh, and National Guard and so many others, residents helping residents, uh, the loss of life through this storm would have been much greater. Utility crews in western New York have been working around the clock to restore service, navigating through downed trees and power lines. Local health officials are working to arrange transportation for people who have medical appointments, many of which were delayed because of the storm. Air raid sirens sounded across Ukraine today as Russia launched dozens of missiles on the country. NPR's Yulian Haida reports this is the largest series of airstrikes in weeks. The commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, Valery Zaluzhny, says that Ukraine shot down all but 15 of the 69 missiles Russia rained down on Ukraine all morning. The missiles that hit their targets damaged vital infrastructure in cities hundreds of miles apart, from near the Polish border to the Black Sea. Officials are recommending people charge up their electronic devices and have extra sources of water because of expectedly lengthy outages. Debris from the intercepted rockets damaged residential areas in at least Kyiv, Odessa, and Ivano-Frankivsk. This is the 10th such attack on Ukraine since early October, and the 
they've grown more infrequent. The last one was 13 days ago. Ukraine's top spy suggests that's because Russia might be running out of long-range weapons. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin has announced that he's been diagnosed with a serious but curable form of cancer. NPR's Marie Andrusevich reports the Democrat says he's preparing to undergo treatment. Raskin said in a statement yesterday that after several weeks of tests, he has been diagnosed with large B-cell lymphoma. He says he will undergo outpatient chemo immunotherapy and that following four months of treatment, the prognosis for people in his situation is excellent. Raskin oversaw Trump's second impeachment and is also a prominent member of the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Just one week ago, House Democrats elected Raskin to a leading role on the powerful Oversight and Reform Committee. The congressman says he expects to continue to work throughout his treatment. Maria Andrusevich, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading higher this morning. This is NPR News in Washington. Concerns about surging coronavirus infections in China have prompted the United States to reimpose travel restrictions. NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports anyone over the age of two traveling directly or indirectly from China or its special administrative regions will have to show negative COVID test results starting on January 5th. China's zero-COVID policy has meant its population of 1.4 billion has no immunity to the Omicron variant of COVID-19. The sudden surge in cases creates conditions in which new variants might emerge. That concerned U.S. officials who say they resumed travel restrictions because of a lack of transparency about the latest outbreak in China, little testing or reporting of cases, and very little genetic information about the variants circulating there now. So airlines must confirm negative COVID testing for all passengers traveling from China, Hong Kong, or Macau, even if they travel through another airport. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. A citywide boil water notice remains in effect in Jackson, Mississippi. Officials say below freezing temperatures caused Jackson's long troubled water system to lose pressure. This is the second time this year that the city has been plagued with water disruptions. In August, its treatment plant failed after severe flooding, leaving residents without running water. And in 2021, a winter storm ruptured pipes and left tens of thousands of residents without water for weeks. I'm Windsor Johnston, and you're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The city of Boston's effort to boost affordable housing could face stiff opposition from developers in the new year. Large builders already contribute 13 percent of new projects to affordable housing efforts. The city wants more. WBUR's Simone Rios reports. Greg Vassell of the Greater Boston Real Estate Board says requiring developers to pay for badly needed affordable housing through changes to the so-called inclusionary development program could have a negative impact. We're way off in terms of the number of housing units created. We're just really concerned that these new rules will help to chill um, a slowing housing production market uh, at the exact time where we really, really direly need more production. But Boston officials say the proposed changes, where 20 percent of new projects would go to affordable housing, up from the current 13 percent, were studied thoroughly to ensure they would not stunt building in the city. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Simone Rios. It's going to be another rough day for Southwest Airlines passengers at Logan Airport. The website FlightAware reports 26 Southwest flights at Logan have been canceled already today. That includes several flights to Baltimore, Chicago, and Nashville. Southwest has suffered a system-wide meltdown of its operations. The airline says it hopes to get things back to normal in the next few days. With a relatively warm New Year's weekend ahead, state officials are warning people to stay off any frozen lakes or ponds. They say that ice that formed during last week's single-digit temperatures isn't solid enough to support your weight. Todd Richards of the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife says you should always check the ice and use caution since bodies of water don't freeze in a uniform way. When you test in one spot, if you're Uh, fishing on impoundments that have rivers coming into them, the ice will be thinner near near that moving water, so you have to be very careful. Richard says ponds and lakes are safe to skate or fish on when they're topped by about four solid inches of ice. However, he recommends avoiding solo excursions on the ice at any time. It's 808. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. The Bruins beat the Devils 3-1 last night in New Jersey. The Bees' next game is Saturday at home against the Buffalo Sabres. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics host the Los Angeles Clippers. In your forecast, mostly sunny today with a high in the mid to upper 40s. Clear overnight. Temperatures will be in the 30s, mostly sunny tomorrow and in the 50s, cloudy with a chance of rain on New Year's Eve. It'll be in the 50s. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 808. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. What's really at stake in the convoluted Supreme Court case over the border? The court plans to hear arguments over what is called Title 42. That refers to a public health rule that allows the federal government to expel asylum seekers without a hearing on their cases because of the pandemic. The idea being they might spread COVID-19 into the United States as if COVID wasn't already here. President Biden's administration planned to lift that rule since the United States has abandoned many other pandemic restrictions, but 19 Republican-led states sued to intervene in the case, and the court froze the rules for now. Republican strategist Mike Madrid is going to talk through the politics of this with us. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for having me. I guess I should state the obvious. This isn't at all about the pandemic, is it? This is not about the pandemic, and it never has been. This is unfortunately a small skirmish in this broader war on immigration reform that the country seems to be incapable of addressing. The last time we had any sort of a comprehensive immigration reform program was 1986, and both sides, both parties are so dug into their respective positions that these small tweaks, these small adjustments, these small opportunities like Title 42 tend to take on this enhanced uh, value um, when when trying to make changes that don't require significant legislative efforts. So no, this has never been about um, about the pandemic. It's always been about these the nominal changes or nominal adjustments in immigration policy, 
And uh, unfortunately, a lot, millions of people now are being affected um, by the performative nature of the politics going on here. In, in practical terms, what 19 Republican states are saying, Republican-led states are saying is, we do not want asylum seekers to receive a hearing. We want them to be thrown out. In practical terms, that's what they're saying. But what do they really want? What are they seeking here? They really want the issue to remain. They really want to keep the border issue as it is because it serves them politically. Um, and that's not to suggest that there isn't partisan politics going on on both sides of this, but it's clearly much more enhanced on the Republican side. Um, if, if this issue goes away, if this issue is resolved, Republicans lose essentially one of the great motivators they have uh, for their base. And that, that really has been one of the driving problems since the early 2000s on trying to get a deal done on immigration reform. And so the visuals, the constant visuals of caravans coming from Central America, uh, encampments now uh, when there are border surges with people uh, living, living, you know, in tents on the border waiting to, to, for their asylum claims, uh, flying people to Martha's Vineyard from other states. Uh, this is all part of the theater that unfortunately is not only affecting people's lives, but it's being used to demonstrate, quote unquote, demonstrate this border crisis, uh, forcing the hands, in their view, forcing the hands of Democrats to increase border security which, of course, uh, the likelihood of that happening without a comprehensive deal is de minimis, and that, they believe, Republicans believe, enhances their positions politically. Although, let's talk through the practical concerns here. The concern is you lift Title 42, you get a surge, an additional surge of people seeking asylum, and there's already an awful lot of people coming to the border in relative terms compared to recent, recent years. There are also some Democrats. Senator Raphael Warnock comes to mind earlier this year. There are some Democrats who said, wait a minute, we actually don't know what would happen after this policy is lifted. We don't know what to do with this surge of people. We are not prepared for this. Is there a case to be made that the country is not ready? Uh, there absolutely is. I, I don't want to suggest that it's an illegitimate concern, but what I am suggesting is there are bigger demographic concerns and, frankly, economic concerns that uh, trump, uh, essentially, uh, the, these nominal changes. We may or may not be prepared for a dropping Title 42, but what we do know is this. The surge is already happening. So the, the, this concern about more and more people coming, uh, I think, is probably a false argument, especially when so many people are now coming from Russia, from India, from, from countries that are not covered under Title 42, um, you know, by the thousands now. And, 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 and so w whether Title 42 is lifted or not, this surge has already arrived. And the only way to address this is not to look at this, again, very narrowly in terms of Title 42, but in a broader, more comprehensive way, because the reason why Title 42 becomes such a big issue is because we're not solving the underlying problem. You mentioned the politics here, that Republicans uh, uh, pound on this issue because they see benefit in firing up their political base. It's a thing that their base voters want. But as you know very well, Republicans also have worked very hard in recent years to appeal to the Latino vote. Uh, they've even had some limited success in limited places in the last couple of elections in appealing to a large chunk of the Latino vote. Um, it's presumed that their immigration stance hurts them, but I wonder if maybe it does or doesn't. Is there a slice of the Latino vote that would actually be with the Republican base on this issue? Steve, that's an excellent question. It's a point I wanted to bring up because... That is absolutely the case. What is happening is Latino voters, this rightward shift we have seen in 2020 that sustained in 2022 
is due in large part to concerns about the lack of border security. Most of those shifts were happening uh, with Hispanic voters along border communities. And so, yes, the Republican position is working with Hispanic voters and the idea, the stereotype that all Latinos somehow are concerned about border security or not concerned about border security support in open borders policy is false. I think this forces the Democrats' hand and Republicans may be actually eking out a big win here or at least forcing uh, a resolution to this policy debate. Republican political consultant Mike Madrid, pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me, Steve. People who promote an energy transition in this country promise two things, an end to coal-powered electricity and new economic development for people who make their living from coal. One thing is happening, the other less so, and the people affected include parts of the Navajo Nation. Here's Alice Fordham from our member station KUNM in New Mexico. In the rocky red landscape outside Farmington, New Mexico, the San Juan coal mine is a broad, dark smudge. Miners work alongside hulking machinery, but they're not digging into the rich black scene. They're filling in shafts and tunnels. We're closing the mine. We've sold all the equipment and we've sealed the portals. General Manager Stephen Piero says about 200 people used to work here. Just a few dozen are left. In the background looms a silent power plant, smokeless smokestacks against the blue sky. We were the sole supplier for the generating station. We have nowhere else to sell our coal. The station employed another 220 people. It closed in September, one of several coal-powered plants either closed or slated to close around here. They supported many families. Started out at age 19, I believe, and I worked for 34 years in the coal mines. Barry Dixon is a member of the Navajo Nation, like many of the workers at mines and plants in this Four Corners region. They were extremely important because they helped create uh, the Navajo middle class to a great extent. In an area of deep poverty, the coal industry provided hundreds of well-paid union jobs. Dixon started as a laborer, became an electrician, built a life, and his family didn't have to labor the way he did. So we were able to pay for our children's needs while in college. So having a home uh, and owning our property, things of that nature like that was, I think, a big benefit to my children, knowing that they knew where home was. Things started to change in 2017 when the utility PNM announced a plan to close the generating station as renewables got cheaper and clean air laws got tighter. Then, New Mexico passed a climate law with a detailed plan for the shutdown. Dixon gave up pressing for it to stay open and negotiated severance as best he could. But the ripples of the closure are wide and deep. For instance, many laid-off workers have already moved to work in mines and plants elsewhere, in some cases leaving relatives to look after their kids. At an elementary school in the nearby town of Kirtland, Principal Debbie Tom says some are struggling. They are familiar with the strains and stresses that it puts on mom, dad, their families, having to even be displaced to caregiving families as, as opposed to being one family unit. And beyond that, the school district relies on tax revenue from power plants. The impact has been felt and, and it has put some in, into disarray because, you know, that was kind of the way of life here. For many, this economic pain is especially galling because it was predicted. When New Mexico passed its Energy Transition Act in 2019, it recognized the likely impact of the closure. It called on the utility, PNM, to build a renewable power plant in the school district and for ratepayers to contribute $20 million for economic development in the area. But neither has happened. 
The utility says third-party companies considering building a solar plant got delayed by supply chain issues, among other things. The $20 million got held up by legal disputes. Local businessman Jason Sandell says this is not fair. We've got a history of supplying energy to really the western United States. And my message is don't forget about us. In August, David Turk, the U.S. Deputy Secretary of Energy, visited and announced a new plan to help. He said, quote, This community doesn't have time to just wait for the transition. We've got to be rapid. A rapid response team was set up, part of a nationwide effort to help coal-dependent communities. The National Laboratory at nearby Los Alamos is leading it. But they say, actually, economic transition isn't rapid. Yolanda Van Wyck leads a group of scientists there. So if you look historically at how these energy transitions have evolved, they take time, a generation or so. Which isn't helping laid-off workers pay their bills. Barry Dixon, the former miner, has had about enough of promises. Fairly disappointed with the state of New Mexico in regard to moving faster than a speeding snail. It's hard to keep track of the legislation, lawsuits, initiatives, and people come to him with questions. How do I pay for health and welfare? I've got kids at home that I've got to take care of. My parents live with me, or my mom lives with me. When is this money going to be made available to us? When? He has to tell them he has no idea. For NPR News, I'm Alice Fordham in Kirtland, New Mexico. This afternoon in All Things Considered, many newspapers are going completely online. What happens when all the biggest cities in a whole state abandon paper? Stream NPR on your smartphone or computer, or just listen to us on the radio, paper-free. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the ongoing campaign by India's Hindu nationalist government to suppress independent journalists. It's 820. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. I'm Scott Tong. Podcast critic Nick Kwa says 2022 was another big year for true crime and investigative podcasts. But it was also this interesting subtrend of shows that were essentially family histories. It's been a sort of really interesting interior year. We talk podcast of the year on the radio next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly clear skies today with a high near 50. Tonight, temperatures may cool to the low 30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a little warmer in the low 50s. Saturday, it'll be mostly cloudy and in the mid-50s in the morning. Then, if you're headed out in the evening to celebrate New Year's Eve, take an umbrella. There's a good chance of rain. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. This is NPR. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Many journalists in India are under threat. Authorities target some for critical reporting and dissenting views. Hindu nationalists outside the government also harass them. Investigative reporter and Washington Post columnist Rana Ayub knows what it's like. Our co-host A. Martinez spoke with her. A, at this point of time, the kind of press censorship that we are witnessing in India, where journalists are being silenced, arrested for stories they have not even reported. When one of India's leading industrialists close to Narendra Modi has taken over uh, one of the few independent press bodies, news channels in India. And uh, when the prime minister of the country has not taken a single press conference in the last eight years, who does not believe he needs to address the media, I feel like there is nothing like press freedom in the world's largest democracy of 1.3 billion people. We need to have a robust press and that is absent because most of the mainstream media is literally repeating the government's line and the ones who are independent, who are critical, are paying a price uh, for doing that. And what you described, Rana, is a playbook that regrettably is being used all over the world, in the United States as well. When you consider that it has to be a chilling thing to think about for a journalist. It is. I mean, Narendra Modi is a new norm of a new world order, whether it is Duterte in Philippines or Trump here or Erdogan or Bolsonaro or or Putin. You look at the attack on the free press. You look at the number of journalists who are behind bars right now. India this year is in the World Press Freedom Index, India is at the 150th position, where recently a journalist was stopped at the airport from traveling to the US to receive her Pulitzer. When I was stopped this year, when I was going to London to speak at a press freedom event. So this is Modi's only learning and enhancing his skills in silencing the press, which is being practiced by megalomaniac leaders, about for, by authoritarian leaders who he is great friends with. So they're all learning from each other and they are realized that they can get away with it with impunity. Whether it is Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, whether it's Modi in India, we see what has happened to countries that have silenced journalists. There has been no repercussion for them. Rana, what kind of harassment have you gone through and how have you handled it? How have you dealt with it? Uh, well, A, the harassment against me has been more than a decade long from, from my image being morphed on a porn video and circulated all over the country to being charge cheated on money laundering case, which I'm going to face now once I arrive in India. Uh, another court summon, I've just received a court summon a month ago for which I have to appear in a court on 28th of January for an article I wrote in the year 2009. And the accusation against me is that I am a practicing Muslim and hence prejudiced in my reportage. How does media ownership in India impact the press freedoms there? Well, I think uh, at this point of time, most of the media groups in India are owned by industrialists and business houses. So to protect their own interests, their platform, the journalism platforms end up becoming a mouthpiece for the government. The structure is such that it is dependent on revenues. Most newspapers in India are dependent on revenues and ads from the government. Many journalists in India, who some of India's finest journalists are now independent consultants. They're not employed of a particular organization. There are many journalists in India who are being arrested, silenced. They can't tell their stories. They're being murdered. We are in a very, very grim place where press freedom is concerned. I can't help but just keep thinking about the citizens of India, Rana, who are watching, reading, and listening to the news outlets. I mean, do they have a sense of what's going on or do they just not care? 
if you were in India right now and watching the news channels, especially the mainstream media, the way they're literally issuing a dog whistle against the Muslim minorities in India against the lower caste, the way they're endorsing the government's line, the way they are parroting the line, the way they are making enemies of each one of us. It is nauseating. You have, you might have one Fox News here at, in India right now. Most of the news channels are incarnates of that. And I think the Indian, Indian population by and large, some sections are of course turning to independent platforms like YouTube and TikTok. But by and large, we are, we are all consuming something that is extremely toxic. Rana, I recently spoke to Indian comedian Veer Das about mm -hmm. his new special, and we got to talking about his viral video from the Kennedy Center a little over a year ago called I Come From Two Indians. Two Indias. When, yeah, when I found out that I was talking to you, Rana, I remembered this part in particular. I come from an India where journalism is supposedly dead because men in fancy suits and studios give each other <laughs> and yet women on the road with laptops are still telling the truth. Veer Das is not a journalist. He took a lot of abuse and was threatened for his speech. He did say in, that, in the start of that clip that uh, I come from an India where journalism is supposedly dead. I think he hopefully is talking about journalists like you and the others that are fighting back. But how close to dying do you think journalism is in India? Well, um, a, there's not a day that goes by where I wake up wondering how long will I be free or how long will my colleagues be free or how long will the journalists who are writing in India be free. One of my colleagues, Gauri Lankesh, was shot dead outside her house in 2017. Till today, nobody knows who killed her. But we do know that Hindu nationalists in India, many members of the government were celebrating her murder on social media, right? Um, so at this point of time, I worry about every single person, especially independent journalists in India, who are putting everything at risk to fight that battle. Journalists should only worry about reporting the stories and not becoming the story themselves. And that's what, unfortunately, we all have become. We have become the stories in the new India that we live in, the India that Veerdas was talking about. Rana Ayub is an investigative journalist and Washington Post columnist from India. Rana, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, a look back at a year of Russian aggression in Ukraine. And Israel swears in what some are saying is its most right-wing government ever today. It's 829. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Noor Rahm. Buffalo, New York is beginning to recover from the huge blizzard that hit last week. 
Officials have lifted the ban on driving in the city. And for the first time in more than a week, there are no winter weather advisories in effect for western New York. The severe winter weather put a lot of stress on the nation's electrical grid, with some regions reporting rolling blackouts. But as NPR's Camilla Dominoski reports, there was no repeat of the kind of catastrophe that gripped Texas in 2021. The problem isn't just that storms can bring down power lines. Bad weather can make it harder to make electricity, exactly when folks need more of it. Picture a power plant freezing over while you turn on a space heater. But overall, the grid did pretty well last week, partly because of the nature of the storm. Bernadette Johnson manages power and renewables at Inveris. It was dry, it was sunny, and it was windy. Those three things made this storm much easier to handle. Not a ton of ice or snow in most places, and lots of solar and wind power to help keep the lights on. The grid might not get so lucky during big storms in the future. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. The storm may have contributed to the breakdown of the water system in Jackson, Mississippi. Officials say the system lost pressure due to line breaks likely caused by the weather. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. A fire broke out at a hotel casino in Cambodia around midnight last night. Officials say at least 19 people died. The casino is located along the border and is popular with people in neighboring Thailand, where gambling is mostly illegal. Airline passengers traveling to the U.S. from China will soon need to show proof of a negative COVID test before entering the country. The move is in response to a surge of COVID cases in China. NPR's Yuki Noguchi has more. China's entire population is vulnerable to the Omicron variant of COVID-19. That creates conditions in which new variants could emerge. And yet, there's little transparency about the genetics of the viruses circulating there now. So as of January 5th, the U.S. will implement new travel restrictions for anyone over the age of two traveling from there. The first legal dispensary for marijuana opens in New York City today. Attorney Michael Bass focuses on health care. He expects there will be a lot of interest in the new business. There's going to be very long lines. And my concern is people may lose patience in these lines and just go over to New Jersey to buy cannabis products and bring it back to New York. Well, if you do that, you've committed a federal crime, trafficking the cannabis across state lines. So I urge folks, please don't do that. New York legalized recreational marijuana nearly two years ago. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Boston is preparing for its annual New Year's Eve celebration. The first night lineup includes dozens of performances at venues across the city on Saturday. Mayor Michelle Wu says the celebration will be back to full force after COVID safety restrictions limited festivities in recent years. This is the first time since the pandemic that we are able to once again host indoor events as part of the celebration. And so there will be indoor programming in the Boston Public Library, Copley Place Mall, and some churches across the city. The midnight countdown takes place at Copley Square. Fireworks are planned over the harbor in the first moments of 2023. There will also be New Year's Day concerts on Sunday in Copley Square. 
10% of the T's red, blue, and orange lines are in areas considered to be slow zones. That's double the amount the T has claimed in its last two annual reports. The T forces trains to slow down in areas where repairs are needed, but usually those slowdowns aren't intended to last a long time. A T spokesperson tells the Boston Globe the increased amount of slow zones are being caused by increased construction activity on the tracks. State Representative Dylan Fernandez is applauding a move by Massachusetts lawmakers to fund abortion access on Cape Cod. Fernandez represents the Cape and Islands District. He says people have had to go off the Cape for abortion care for years. The money is part of over $4 million going to reproductive health organizations across the state. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Bruins stopped the Devils 3-1 to last night in New Jersey. The Bees have won nine of their last 13 games this month. They have one more game before the new year. That's Saturday at home against the Buffalo Sabres. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics play the Los Angeles Clippers. Mostly sunny skies today with just a few clouds and temperatures in the upper 40s. Low 30s tonight, then we end the week tomorrow with another mostly sunny day in the low 50s. Our New Year's Eve this year will be mostly cloudy and in the mid 50s, there's a good chance of rain beginning in the late afternoon. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Noom, a personalized weight loss program designed to give people knowledge to set new goals and the tools to stick to them for good. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Russian airstrikes hit multiple cities in Ukraine today. The attacks make this a normal day for Ukraine as 2022 comes to an end. In Lviv in the West, the mayor said this morning 90% of the city is without power. More strikes hit the capital, Kiev, and also in Kharkiv to the northeast, which is where we find NPR's Tim Mack, who's covered much of this war. Hey there, Tim. Hey there. Good morning. What's it like there? Well, we heard multiple explosions this morning. And actually, as we're sitting and anticipating this air alert, you can kind of almost predict these explosions happening. The light kind of flickers a little bit. And then a few seconds later, you hear the explosion catch up to you and you hear Mm. this big boom. Now, we don't know what's been targeted this morning, but yesterday here in Kharkiv, two strikes hit the city's energy infrastructure. The temperature has been hovering around freezing of the last week and this bitter wind makes life here just that much harder. The Ukrainians pushed the Russian military out of this region, the region of Kharkiv, in September in this flash counteroffensive, but there is still concern here that the Russians could be back soon. I spoke to the brigadier general that's in charge of the defense of this region, Serhiy Melnik. He says Putin still has the same ambitions, despite losing initial battles in Ukraine, and that they have intelligence that shows that the Russian military is mobilizing again for another possible attack. Meanwhile, the energy issues 
have been particularly serious in the capital city of Kyiv, and they have been since October when Russia really started focusing on Ukraine's power system. There's a lot of tension and anticipation in the air about additional strikes around New Year's. Well, how do people adjust when the war becomes a daily reality? You know, people are so adaptable. They look at the blackouts as a near daily matter. I mean, this morning at breakfast, we heard this big explosion. The lights kind of flickered for a little bit. Then the backup power kicked in. The music stopped for a second and then just kind of started up again abruptly. I mean, generators here, power cafes, and local business people who have been unable to find work inside of Ukraine are looking to clients abroad to make up the difference. And now, Yaroslav Trofimov owns a cafe and club in Odessa, and he says small business owners like himself have to spend thousands of dollars on generators. Then I take a calculator and I just do small math and I see they will maybe spend two years covering the price of a generator. So why do they uh, still do a coffee? They do a coffee because maybe they just don't want to give up. And the national economy needs them not to give up. Ukrainian economists still estimates that the country's GDP has declined by one-third, which would be devastating to any country under any circumstances. But this is actually better than the most dire predictions from the outset of the war. And next year, the International Monetary Fund actually expects the Ukrainian economy to stabilize. What do you hear from the front lines where things have not been that stable? The battle lines have not moved significantly over the last couple of weeks, but there's been fighting over areas in the south and east of the country. Now, at the moment, there are enormous amounts of munitions being used by both sides, but without the sort of sudden advances that we've seen earlier this year. Meanwhile, the death toll is climbing. The UN estimated this week that nearly 7,000 civilians have been killed over the past 10 months. But it also acknowledges that the actual tally is probably much higher, since data from Russian-occupied areas is hard to come by. And that makes negotiating an end to the war really very difficult. NPR's Tim Mack in Kharkiv as 2022 nears an end. Tim, thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Israel is swearing in a new government today. It's expected to be the most right-wing government in Israel's history, including some far-right figures. Earlier this month, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told NPR that he will be telling the more extreme figures what to do. They're joining me. I'm not joining them. I'll have two hands firmly on the steering wheel. I won't let anybody uh, do anything to LGBT or to deny uh, our Arab citizens their rights or anything like that. It just won't happen. And the test of time will prove that. But the new prime minister has committed to dramatic changes in government, and one idea would allow his parliamentary majority to vote down the rulings of Israel's Supreme Court. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Tel Aviv. Hey there, Daniel. Good morning, Steve. How would that plan work? The plan is, you know, if the Supreme Court decides a law is unconstitutional, If it decides a law doesn't protect human rights or civil rights, the parliament would be able to come back and say, sorry, Supreme Court, you no longer have the final say. The context here, Steve, is that the incoming right-wing government in Israel accuses the Supreme Court of being too liberal, too protective of Palestinian rights. They want to redefine Israel's system of checks and balances. Um, And so we're going to be seeing this government try to concentrate power with the governing majority. We're going to see more dominance of ultra-Orthodox Jewish leadership as well. So we're going to see plans, their plans are to give more public funding to religious schools that don't teach kids math and subjects that are supposed to prepare you for a modern economy. 
I think one big question in this new government's plan, Steve, is how much change we're going to see in the occupied West Bank. Netanyahu himself will want to avoid an international crisis and to maintain the status quo, but he is giving sweeping powers to government ministers who do want a major change to the status quo. Essentially, they want de facto annexation of the West Bank. Okay, so maybe he's not endorsing everything that the more extreme figures in his government would want, but he wants big changes. How does that connect with the personalities bringing into government? You know, the makeup of this government, we are looking at far-right Jewish ultranationalists. We're talking about a, a national security minister who has a terrorism conviction for his anti-Arab activism. We have other far-right ministers, ultra-religious. These are all politicians who are farther to the right than Netanyahu is himself. But they are ideologues who will have a lot of leverage over Netanyahu. Remember, he depends on them for his government. Now, this is the coalition that just won the election. Netanyahu's party didn't get a majority, but he assembled a majority coalition. Is the Israeli public on board with these changes? You know, Steve, most Israelis are actually not on board with some of these policy proposals. If you look at a recent poll, a large majority of Israelis opposes every one of some of these major proposals, including those changes to the Supreme Court I was talking about. We've heard an outcry in Israel from high-tech entrepreneurs, from army veterans. In Parliament today, Netanyahu was booed uh, by the opposition. He said, stop claiming that this is the end of democracy. But, you know, we've seen mixed messages, especially on LGBTQ issues. A rocky start, Steve, even before day one of this government. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Tel Aviv. Daniel, always appreciate your insights. Thanks so much. You're welcome. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, if reducing your carbon footprint is on your list of New Year's resolutions, we have some suggestions for success. In your forecast, upper 40s today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight, low 30s. Then for your Friday, mostly sunny and low 50s. Saturday, a mostly cloudy New Year's Eve in the mid-50s with a good chance of rain in the evening. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, the Randstad staffing firm is trying to relocate over 140 workers at the biotech company EMD Millipore in Danvers. Randstad said Millipore gave the firm short notice that the employees' assignments were ending early. So far, Randstad has offered nearly half of the employees' positions at other companies around the area. New Hampshire is getting nearly $60 million as part of a settlement against CVS and Walgreens for their role in the state's opioid crisis. The state says those pharmacies over-dispensed the addictive medications and didn't report prescriptions that seem suspicious. This comes after New Hampshire successfully joined a suit against Walmart earlier this month. That settlement will bring over $15 million more million to the state. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more. 
and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. As 2022 winds down, many of us are considering our New Year's resolutions, and some of those resolutions may be focused on how to reduce your carbon footprint. So for some advice on how to set climate resolutions and maybe try to keep them, we've asked Julia Simon on. She recently joined NPR's climate team to report on solutions to climate change. Julia, first off, welcome. Thanks, A. Good to be here. All right, Julia, what is a climate resolution? So a climate resolution is something that will reduce emissions that I make. So for 2023, I'm going to take less flights. I am going to eat less meat and reduce my carbon footprint. All right, got it. So how much, though, of an impact can I have? Little old me. I mean, is it possible for me to move the needle on this? Yes. Obviously, governments and corporations have a huge role to play in reducing their emissions, but our actions as individuals matter. Companies make decisions based on consumer demand. And if I take action, that can inspire my family and friends to take action, too. All right. Set us up uh, here, Julia. What's a good New Year's resolution to start off with? Two words, food waste. Up to 40% of food gets wasted in the U.S. And wasted food in a landfill releases methane, which is this really potent planet heating gas. So one New Year's resolution is to use the food we buy. For marine biologist and climate policy advisor Ayana Johnson, she starts in the back of her refrigerator. There's those vegetables in the back that like don't get enough love. So can you freeze them? Can you... Be more realistic about how many you're going to eat before they go bad and not buy them. She says buy fruits and vegetables bit by bit so they don't go bad. And if you go out to eat, you know, take the leftovers home. Really, like, you're not sacrificing anything. If anything, you're sacrificing the guilt that's associated with wasting food. And I think we could all use a little less guilt. Food waste, it accounts for up to 10% of all emissions globally. So... This is a really good resolution to start with. That's food, though. What about uh, a resolution for reducing emissions from the ways we get around? So if you're someone who flies a lot, this year, try reducing your air travel. Flying makes up about 2% of emissions, which doesn't sound like a lot. But if that was a country, it would be one of the top 10 emitters. Now, some airlines will say you can have the option to buy carbon credits to offset your flight's emission. But experts will tell you that there's no reliable way of knowing if those offsets are really working. Julia, what if I want to do more? What advice do you have for someone who maybe wants to have a a longer term, a stretch climate resolution? So for a stretch climate resolution, you can try getting into energy policy. That might sound hard, but... I have an easy way to do it, which is get in touch with your public utility regulator. These are the people that regulate the companies that give us power. And in the U.S., almost 60 percent of our power still comes from fossil fuels. These regulators can help power companies transition off of coal or off of gas. There are public meetings where you can call in or show up and share where you'd like to see your energy come from. This resolution could have a long-term impact beyond 2023. All right, that's Julia Simon. She covers climate solutions for NPR. Julia, thanks. Thanks, A. Happy New Year. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on the Marketplace Morning Report, the market for cars has been tight for the last few years, but now there are signs it's reversing course with supplies up and demand down. Coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Deepa Fernandez is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Deepa. Good morning, Rupa. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing well. We've got some fun stuff on the show today, in addition to all the major news of the day, of course. But one that I'm particularly excited about is an interview, a sit-down with the famous Booker T. Jones. Now, if you're an aficionado of the Hammond B3 organ, um, if you know his sound from the Stax days, Stax records, of course, out of Memphis, well, Booker T. Jones sits down with us, and it's a really compelling interview. We also talk Talk to Nancy Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra Pelosi, who made a documentary about her mother after following her around for ooh, about 35 years with a camera and then an iPhone. And there's lots of behind the scenes stuff. We talk to Alexandra Pelosi and get a really important update on how her father, Paul Pelosi, is doing after the attack. And of course, all the news of the day, Rupa. I've seen some previews of that film. It's really fascinating. I'll look forward to the conversation. Thank you, Deepa. Thank you. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Tiziana Deary. Today on Radio Boston, we bring some of our favorite conversations from this year where science met art. We dive into Massachusetts Emerald Sea with an underwater photographer, learn about AI that writes and paints, and we make music with our minds. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Clear skies in upper 40s today, tonight low 30s, tomorrow mostly sunny and slightly warmer in the low 50s. Right now it's 38 degrees in Boston at 852. Buying a car is becoming easier, but more expensive. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. From Marketplace in Los Angeles, I'm Nova Safo in for David Brancaccio. Next week, automakers are scheduled to report how many new vehicles they sold in the U.S. in December. That means we'll also have sales totals for all of 2022. A report from industry analysts at J.D. Power and LMC Automotive says fewer people are buying new cars as the year comes to an end, and not necessarily because there's a lack of inventory. Justin Ho reports. Ever since late summer, it's been getting easier to find certain types of vehicles at dealerships, says Michelle Krebs with Cox Automotive. We're seeing inventory increase with the domestic automakers in particular, with full-size pickup trucks and luxury cars. That said, Krebs expects vehicle sales to fall 8% this year. That's because demand for new vehicles is softening, thanks in large part to rising interest rates on auto loans. That bumps up the monthly car payment. The monthly car payment is well over $700 now, and that's just not affordable for some people. But as auto inventories continue to improve, new vehicle prices could become less inflated, says Carl Brower with iccars.com. You're still paying more than you did before the pandemic for them, 
but the momentum seems to be shifting somewhat rapidly back toward normalcy. Brower says he expects demand for new and used vehicles to continue slowing down into next year. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. European Union health officials are meeting to decide on a coordinated response as China prepares to ease its foreign travel restrictions next week. There is concern over the rapidly rising COVID cases in China. The U.S. and several other countries have already imposed new testing requirements for Chinese travelers. The BBC's Simon Jones has more. There's growing international concern about the surge in COVID cases in China as it prepares to reopen its borders to international travel, but no consensus over how best to respond to it. The US says from early next year, all passengers arriving from China will need proof of a negative test to enter the country. Some of China's neighbours, India, Japan and Taiwan, are also introducing restrictions. And the European Commission will meet today to discuss a possible coordinated approach after Italy announced its own measures. That's Simon Jones with our editorial partners at the BBC. We heard from the Labour Department this hour that the number of initial claims for unemployment benefits rose slightly last week. The total is 225,000, still relatively low. Continuing claims rose just above 1.7 million. Let's do the numbers. In Asia, all major indexes fell four-tenths percent in Shanghai, nearly one percent for Japan's Nikkei. The FTSE in London is now flat. Dow, S&P and Nasdaq futures are pointing up in the six-tenths to one percent range. Oil prices are retreating. Global benchmark Brent crude is down one percent to just under $80 per barrel. Brent crude is down nearly 25 percent in the last six months. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Viking, exploring the world in comfort. Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at viking.com. Before we welcome 2023, we've been taking stock of this past year, and today we turn to Europe, where there's a lot of economic uncertainty and hardship thanks to the war in Ukraine. Russia's decision to weaponize and therefore cut the bulk of its natural gas supplies to the rest of Europe has thrown the continent into its worst energy crisis in at least a decade. So how is Europe coping, and what's ahead in the new year? Marketplace's Stephen Beard joins us from our European desk in London. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Nova. So how has the European Union been dealing with the energy crisis that Russia created? Well, it has been coping. This has not been the humanitarian disaster that some predicted. Liquid natural gas imports, especially from the US, have soared. Most EU countries have committed to cut their gas consumption by 15%. And it's been a relatively mild winter in Europe so far. Households generally have been cushioned by government help. So This has not been a catastrophe. And the reason we thought it would be, or at least early on, was because Europe was so dependent on Russia and the Ukraine war really exposed that dependence. Now Europe is having to look elsewhere for energy. You mentioned LNG. What have the repercussions of that kind of switch been? There's been a big environmental repercussion. A lot more coal has been burned The biggest economic repercussion, perhaps, is the fact that a whole swathe of heavy industry across the continent, but especially in Germany, 
has been mothballed to save gas. And there's a big fear in Germany uh, as we enter 2023 that its industry is going to suffer a severe comparative disadvantage compared with the US, for example, because it's shut off now from the cheap Russian gas for the foreseeable future. Hmm. And what about the rest of Europe uh, or Europe as a whole? Where is it likely headed in the new year? Well, it's not going to be a particularly happy uh, new year, it seems. The bloc is expected to be in a recession pretty soon, and yet the European Central Bank is tightening interest rates to combat inflation. Short-term rates are expected to rise from 2% to 3.5% by the summer, and yet the euro is widely forecast to fall below parity with the US dollar. That could mean higher interest rates still and much higher rates in the eurozone. Nova always raises the spectre of another eurozone debt crisis. Mm. The country to watch in this regard is Italy with its very weak growth and a public debt pile worth about 150% of GDP. A crisis in Italy uh, with the third largest economy in the eurozone would be much, much more serious than the crisis in Greece more than a decade ago. That's certainly something very sobering to think about as we prepare for the new year. Marketplace's Stephen Beard in London, thank you very much. Thank you, Nova. And ExxonMobil is suing the European Union over a new windfall tax on oil company profits. Well, maybe it's a tax. The EU calls it a levy. And what a court ultimately decides it's called could determine whether the EU had the authority to impose it. Exxon has previously estimated the new policy could cost the company at least $2 billion next year. I'm Novasafo with a Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. We'll have a high near 48 today under mostly sunny skies, a low tonight around 34, and the skies stay clear. Tomorrow, the last Friday of the year, mostly sunny and a high of 54. New Year's Eve will be cloudy with a high near 56. And if you're making plans, keep in mind there's a good chance of rain starting Saturday evening and continuing into New Year's Day. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on set 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. WBUR is fueled by the belief that independent journalism has a critical role in our lives, our communities, and our democracy. And we're fueled by the support listeners give because they want to make a meaningful difference. Now's the time to join them. I'm Lisa Mullins. Make your tax-deductible year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.